Many banks, investors and other financial actors continue to reward polluters and incentivize wrecking the planet. We need a course correction in the global financial system so that it supports accelerated climate action. You have just heard from UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres speaking at a recent press conference. Welcome to Climate Talks, the podcast that follows global climate negotiations and this year the journey to COP28. Climate Talks is produced by Melbourne Climate Futures and the Melbourne Centre for Cities at the University of Melbourne. I'm your host, Cathy Oak, and I'm joined by my fellow co-host, Jackie Peel. Before we get started, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which this podcast was produced. I pay respects to the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We invite our listeners to take a moment to reflect and acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which you live. Welcome listeners, it's Jackie. With our guests today, Cathy and I will be focusing on the role of finance in climate action. And don't worry, that's more exciting than it might sound. Before we turn to our guest, Cathy, let's briefly talk with the wonderful Beck Markey-Towler about the latest on COP28. So since we last spoke, Beck, things on the road to COP28 have been heating up quite literally and alarmingly. Yeah, that's unfortunately right, Cathy. So experts have confirmed that July 2023 will go down in the record books as the hottest month ever recorded in human history. We also saw devastating wildfires breaking out across Hawaii and most of the northern hemisphere, it seemed, at some point was on fire, worsened by a number of factors, including climate change. The question is, how did these highly reported events and obviously terribly tragic loss of lives change the ongoing dialogues? How do they change the outcomes or the actions needed at COP28? Look, unfortunately, I'd say not really, Cathy. The G20 Environment and Climate Ministers meeting at the end of July delivered very little in terms of substantive progress. Uh, But we did see the start of a plan for the Dubai summit spelt out in President-designate Al-Jabba's letter to countries. So that basically said that unity is a prerequisite for success. I I don't know that that's rocket science. And it called for four paradigm shifts. Fast tracking the energy transition and cutting emissions before 2030. Putting nature, people, lives and livelihoods at the heart of climate action. Mobilising for the most inclusive COP to date, we'll be waiting to see how that's delivered. And most relevantly for today's episode, to deliver old promises and to set the framework for a new deal on finance. They're big statements, aren't they, Cathy and Jackie? So stay tuned also for a busy September ahead in the lead up to COP28. We've got some major summits coming up, including the Africa Climate Summit, the G20 Delhi Summit, and the UN Climate Action Summit in New York. And there'll be also the important launch of the UN Global Stock Takes technical paper. 
Yeah, back in fact, probably that one's the most significant because it is looking at the progress countries are making towards the Paris temperature goals. But we'll all be watching for action and not just words. So thanks for that update, Beck, on actions towards COP28. Cathy, let's turn to introduce our guests. We're very excited to have joining us on this episode, uh, Dr. Arj Dibley, who's the head of the Sustainable Finance Hub at Melbourne Climate Futures and also one of our fabulous research fellows, Purdy Bounden, who is the program lead, Policy and Sustainable Finance Solutions at the Australian Sustainable Finance Institute, and Erwin Jackson, who is the Director, Policy at the Investor Group on Climate Change. Hi, Arj. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Great to be here, Jackie. Arj, we're talking climate finance in in this episode, but we need a little bit of a 101. Can you give us a bit of an overview about what's meant when we hear about climate change and finance? So what's the difference between public and private finance? What does it mean if it's finance for mitigation, say, against finance for adaptation, for example? Sure. So I know a lot of your listeners will probably have their eyes glaze over when they hear the word finance. And sometimes the connection to climate change is um, a little bit abstract, but actually, you know, I would argue that finance is a key enabler to translate what are sometimes high level goals and, and, and pledges into, into action, into real projects. So we need finance to invest in activities that will reduce emissions to make the the goals of the Paris Agreement come to life, um, so mitigation projects, um, and we obviously need finance on the adaptation side. So, you know, when we talk about climate finance, we really talk about money that will flow through everything, everything from a you know giant billion-dollar offshore wind farm um, right through to you know a very small-scale. Uh, port redevelopment or or um, or installing solar panels on your roof. So it's a very, very large uh, swathe of different activities. And in addition to, you know, enabling these projects, I think finance plays a really important role in the kind of grand bargain of the international climate agreements and the, and the negotiation process, which I know that you have talked about on this podcast before. We often talk about climate finance and the gaps that exist. Uh, so perhaps can you tell us a little bit about what some of the key priorities are in this area? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, to, to pick up on my last point about the grand bargain, the international agreement, the Paris Agreement that we currently have includes within it some really key terms which were essential to bringing developing countries along with developed countries you know, the Paris Agreement is structured such that all countries have to make commitments to reduce their emissions. But in the case of developing countries, because those commitments, you know, require lots of money uh, to reduce your emissions, to build new projects, part of the terms of the Paris Agreement include financial commitments. So there's a famous or infamous $100 billion pledge uh, that developed countries should provide $100 billion annually to developing countries um, by 2020. That pledge wasn't actually met, and it looks like we might get there this year, but that was a key part of the terms of the Paris Agreement. 
But I think it's important to note that what's in the Paris Agreement terms is a political goal. The $100 billion was just a number pulled out for negotiation purposes. And there's since been quite a lot of work looking at what it will actually take to reach 1.5 degrees. And the numbers are much, much higher than $100 billion. Uh, we're, we're looking at you know, over $4 trillion uh, with a T um, by 20, 2030. And um, we're, we're really far off that at the moment. Yeah, look, uh, John, on that sort of practical action piece, you're launching the Sustainable Finance Hub within Melbourne Climate Futures. What are some of the sorts of things that we can actually do to, to bridge that gap in Australia or in our region? What sorts of things do you think you can really make a difference on? So, you know, in order to to bridge the gap between where we are and, and where we are at the moment is about 800 to 900 billion dollars. So we're, you know, making some really good progress, but we're still falling short of what we need to be spending each year. And this is really the big issue at the moment. You know, what are the tools and mechanisms that'll help us get there? And if we look around it in the climate finance space at the moment, you know, there's a lot of money coming from the public sector. Um, there's, there's increasing funds coming from the private sector, but more needs to flow from the private sector. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a lot of financial innovation that needs to happen to make that possible, to, to attract private financing. And so, you know, one of the things that we'll, we'll be doing at the Hub is looking at the current barriers for investing and particularly by private actors. So we have a big project that looks at so-called institutional investors. So these are superannuation funds and insurance companies, uh, really, really big financial players who currently aren't investing as much as we think they could be. And we, you know, we're carrying out a research project to, to look at some of the key regulatory and economic and policy barriers which are currently in place that, that are preventing them. Thanks so much for joining us, Saj. Thanks. Well, thank you for joining us today, Purdy. We'll just start off by asking you to let our listeners know a little bit more about the work of the Australian Sustainable Finance Institute. Great. Thanks for having me. Um, so the Australian Sustainable Finance Institute, or ASPI, was established uh, about two years ago with just a, a small mission to realign Australia's financial system, consistent with an Australia that's sustainable, resilient and inclusive. So our mandate really is about uh, sustainability writ large across climate, nature and social well-being. Um, we're a member-based organisation and our members are 42 of Australia's largest financial institutions across banking, investment, insurance and financial services, all committed to our mission. So our genesis, ASFI's genesis, was a collaborative initiative between finance sector, firms and individuals, civil society, academia and government that created an Australian Sustainable Finance Roadmap in 2019 and 2020. The roadmap sets out 37 recommendations for realigning the Australian financial system. Uh, one of those recommendations was to establish a permanent body to oversee and coordinate and drive forward implementation of those recommendations. We have a number of work streams. We work with our members to support them to become leaders in their field on sustainable finance. We're developing a First Nations in Finance work program. We have a, a natural capital-based project with uh, Farming for the Future to help banks and farmers better understand the value of protecting and restoring natural capital on farmland. 
we do a lot of policy work in the sustainable finance space and work very closely with government um, and across the sector on sustainable finance policy. Our flagship project is the development of uh, an Australian sustainable finance taxonomy. Taxonomy is a piece of jargon, so let me briefly explain what that is. Essentially, it's a set of definitions that financial institutions and others can use to determine whether a proposed project would be consistent with achieving the 1.5 degree temperature goal or not. So uh, with this uh, set of definitions, everyone's working off the same playbook uh, and they're saying, yes, that's a green project. No, that's a, that's a fossil fuel project. That's absolutely not consistent. And then there's something in between, which means it's a transition project. So maybe it's high emitting at the moment, but it is absolutely essential on the pathway to decarbonisation that we get investment into some of those high emitting sectors so that they can decarbonise uh, and we can meet our climate goals. ASFI is leading that with the support of the Australian Treasury, Australian Government and, and many of our members and, and other members of the finance sector. The other thing I think relevant to this podcast that I want to mention in our work program is the work that we are doing on international climate finance. Some of this we are doing with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade uh, and our members looking at opportunities for uh, public and private collaboration to catalyse more private finance and investment for climate action in our region, in the Asia-Pacific region. And this work, like all of what we do, is about collaboration. As we lead into COP28, it's not that far away. What are the really, you know, your key priorities for advocacy or even to be achieved at COP28 in this climate finance space? I mean, I'd say at the outset, COP28, it's a bit of a waypoint COP. We have our, our COP president and host being Dubai. Some questions, I guess, around the bona fides of the, of the COP presidency. We don't want to set our sights and ambitions too high. What it would be great is to see no backsliding. It would be great to see progress on some of those technical issues that are underway. And it would be great, I, I think, to see some outcomes that took forward those high-level signals, which the private sector really responds to, about looking at phasing out fossil fuels, about particular sectoral targets. In the sort of climate finance space, the negotiations will be working up to the development of a new global climate finance goal, followed very shortly by uh, individual country-level targets. From an ASFI perspective, we are really interested in the role of private capital in contributing to that, and a lot of that happens outside the negotiations um, specifically. But what we do have underway that has, has started to see coming through into the negotiations is negotiations on Article 2.1c, which is the objective in the Paris Agreement to align global financial flows with decarbonisation, low emissions and climate resilient pathways. Um, and that really gets to a, a huge trend that we're seeing in the private sector of countries around the world looking at how governments can play a role in supporting the greening of the financial system. Um, and we've seen that through a kind of, again, outside the negotiations, things like the ISSB's development of global baseline sustainability reporting, things like the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. So many trillions of dollars now committed to reaching net zero by 2050. And, uh, and what we're interested now in is in supporting the implementation of those goals, which is always where the rubber hits the road and, and, and is really tricky. I guess when we're thinking about the responsibilities and priorities of Australia in the climate finance space, Australia's interests and responsibilities on climate action don't stop at our border. We have a huge role to play in the region and it's been great to see this government commit to being the partner of choice 
in the region on climate finance. That has to mean stepping up our international climate finance and support. Private finance, private capital doesn't just flow on its own where we want it to. Governments need to be really active on that. And Australia has a lot to offer the region in terms of its technical expertise and its experience in climate mitigation and adaptation. And we have a lot to gain in deepening our support for partner countries from a foreign policy perspective, a trade policy perspective and a development policy perspective. Just two areas I'd like to call out that, that we'd really love to see Australia continuing to play a more active role in terms of our international climate finance and support through to COP28, but also down the track a bit further if Australia is, as expected, confirmed to be the president and host of COP31 in 2026, then the spotlight will be even more strongly shining on our kind of international climate finance. And, and there are great opportunities here for the government to take advantage of. The other thing that we have in Australia is a, is a very large and, and very successful green bank in the Clean Energy Finance Corporation. This has had played a really important role in building markets in Australia that are capable of supporting the deployment of clean energy and other climate solutions. Is there a way that we could extend that model into South and Southeast Asia in particular to support our neighbours uh, undergo the transition that they're also grappling with? Thank you for joining us today on Climate Talks Purdy and good luck with uh, your significant work plan. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Hi, Owen. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. Owen, in this episode, we're talking about climate finance, and it'd be great if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about the role of the Investor Group on Climate Change and the work you're doing in that area particularly why private climate finance is, is so important? Well, I, the Investor Group on Climate Change, or IGCC, is basically an industry association. We have around 100 members. Um, they're all, most of them are institutional investors, so asset owners, asset managers, your big super funds, your big pension funds. We've got local investors and global investors. And they've essentially all come to the conclusion that climate change is a systemic risk to their investment portfolios. And we need, therefore, when they're thinking deeply about um, what is their role in providing private capital to you know, companies and infrastructure projects, uh, real estate assets, et cetera, in a way that meets their long-term duty to protect the interests of their members. So you and I, essentially, in terms of our super funds. And they've come to the conclusion that the best way to do that is to you know, deliver uh, an emissions pathway which is consistent with limiting warming to one and a half degrees because every increment of warming above that risks major climate damage to economic and financial systems and potential systemic risks to the entire financial system and the economy. So they're really focused on how we deliver the solutions to that problem. Getting to 1.5 degrees is hard. It's going to require a lot of capital. The capital's there. Like our members represent $30 trillion in assets under management. The, the money's not, not, not unavailable. But how do you actually get it into the economy, into the Australian economy, to support the transition and that delivers the best risk return profiles for members in the long term? So they're very focused particularly on the policy environment. Because ultimately, it's the policy environment 
that's going to allow investors to invest with confidence in Australia to deliver all the capital that we need to make this transition in an orderly and just way. Yeah, so does that also encompass aspects of the international policy environment, Owen? So do you have key priorities and and challenges there for IGCC in in terms of what your investor members are looking for from just not just Australian policymakers but also at the international level? Yes, Um, capital is mobile. Our members are both Australian super funds and international funds. They're investing around the world. They're, you know, investing large sums of Australian capital um, or your my super money in other parts of the world. So they're very interested in what the other policy settings are in other countries. Because at the moment, what we're seeing from other countries is basically a green industrial revolution subsidy race sparked by the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. So what we're seeing is all these incentives coming in into in other countries to, you know, attract new investment in new industries, new technologies, uh, new economic systems, and that's driving their investment decisions. Because again, they've got to get the best long-term risk return profile for their members. And at the moment, because of all of that, what we're seeing is a large amount of capital flight out of Australia. Because the policy settings here, while we've had massive improvement and the government's done a lot. Um, over the last 18 months and committed to a lot of really useful things over the next 18 months. The climate wars haven't abated in some respects, which makes members nervous. The other thing that I think is important is that, you know, increasingly there's a recognition that amongst investors that what happens in emerging markets is critical. So they're doing a lot of thinking about what are we, how do we, if you're an Australian super fund, what would the conditions be like? in say Vietnam to invest in this potentially huge investment opportunity in new industries and clean tech in Asia. And one of the things that's that therefore the global framework is A are very important, like setting the rules about what's green and what's not and all those kinds of things, but also engaging with um, local policymakers about what the investors need from local policy to attract capital into those countries. The third point I'd probably make is that the whole adaptation and physical risk is rapidly escalating on investors' agendas. They're seeing, like everyone else, what's happening around the world at the moment. Um, they've been doing a lot of work on it themselves for a lot of years, but now that's becoming much more sharpened. So they're you know, increasingly assessing what physical damages or loss and damage is happening in places or regions or countries due to climate change itself. And... If we don't get the international settings right, we don't get the local settings right, there's a real risk that capital will flow out of those countries because simply because the climate damage is so large, they become uninvestable. So the investors are really keen, therefore, to again, work with local governments, international frameworks to make sure we've got the right settings in place to get that private sector capital flowing into adaptation and resilience as well as mitigation. Yeah, so it really sounds like there's a broad range of interests that are being pursued by IGCC on behalf of its members. What kind of presence do you have at a, at a meeting like COP28 and what sorts of conversations are you involved in? What are you trying to further for your investor members? COPs are have, have, have sort of, I've been involved in the international UN process for a very long time, probably too long actually. <laughs> um, the COPs have now emerged into this not only just a negotiation forum between governments, but a discussion across a broad range of sectors, civil society, 
unions, communities, First Nations people, um, and governments. So investors are really keen to be part of those conversations. They want to understand what the impacts are and how First Nation people are feeling about these issues. Um, because that ultimately, if that's not being properly dealt with, that's a financial risk to them. They want to engage with governments across the world. They want to learn from their peers. So there's a lot of events that happen around the COP. So investors, Australian investors get engaged with that. Say, so I've got this wicked problem about how to deal with the emerging impacts of climate change on my assets. So they can sit down with their peers from around the world and discuss solutions to those problems. The other really important part, of course, is making sure that the investor voice is embedded into the global governmental conversation. So we work with our peers in, in Asia, in Europe, uh, North America, and with the big global investor networks to bring together a coherent message to policymakers about what investors need to make sure that we limit damages with any warming above 1.5 degrees. Thanks, Owen. That was great. My pleasure. Thank you to our guests, Arj Dibley, Purdy Bowden and Erwin Jackson for joining us today and to our listeners for tuning in. I'm your host, Cathy Oak. And I'm Jackie Peel. You've been listening to the Climate Talks podcast produced by Greta Robinstone, Beck, Marky Taylor and Ben Chandler. Thanks to Music for a Warming World for providing the show's music taken from their album, Only One Way to Head. To stay up to date on the latest episodes, subscribe to the Climate Talks podcast. You'll find more information about this episode and our guests in the show notes. And you can also follow us on X at Network Cities and at MCF Uni Melbourne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>